on the set. Okay, everybody, quiet on the set. Scene one, take ten, Marker. From the studio of WHUP LP Hillsboro, welcome to Murmur. My name is Robert Malazzo, and over the next hour together, we'll explore where culture meets craft. Today on Murmur, the loneliness of the long-distance writer, author, iconoclast, literary marathonist, Terry Brooks is with us. Welcome. Welcome to Murmur. Welcome back to Murmur. Happy to be here with you today. My name is Robert Malazzo. I am the founder of the Modern School of Film. And on a weekly basis, I come to you with Murmur here at WHUPLP. We're also on iTunes. We're on Google Play. We're on Stitcher. I'm getting closer to figuring out what Stitcher is, but I think it's a good thing. Uh, We also have a website, murmurradio.com. We have social handles, of course. Uh, We don't want to be antisocial, so we're social at MSF Murmur, at MSF Murmur. That's Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. Also, email us, uh, murmurradio at gmail.com. We are going to do a highly interactive session with one of our guests soon. So email us. Let us know you're out there. Go to our website, murmurradio.com. Email is murmurradio at gmail.com. That's a lot of information. It's a lot for me. And, you know, I didn't write it down. I don't tend to write information down. I don't tend to write things down. Um, But it's all connected. And, you know, surfing online and doing research and and, uh, communicating is sort of a firm grasp of the obvious these days. So put all the puzzle pieces together. And we're happy to have you with us today on Murmur. I'm always fascinated by uh, solo artistic pursuits. Um, I'm a bit of a sports fan, and I think, you know, in terms of the ways and means of, of American sports, and maybe not just American sports, but international sports, but let's locate it around American sports. Before we talk about art, let's talk about sport. Team sports are all the rage, and individual sports such as tennis, golf, you know, they, they've ha- they have moments. They have certainly incredible moments. And internationally, uh, sports like race car driving and here, NASCAR in the U.S., solo versus team competition. And I always think of art um, and sport. Uh, you know, what, what, not makes, but what pushes a man or woman to go into a solo artistic pursuit much in the way one would go into a solo um, athletic pursuit, but now let's look at art. What 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 drives us there? I love those stories of filmmakers, and filmmaking is a weird hybrid because it's it's a solo pursuit and it's a communal pursuit. It it's a very lonely action creating a film or creating directing a piece of content. Um, but it, you're also surrounded by people constantly, and I always look at it this way. Filmmakers are the only ones on the movie set that everyone, they they care about everything in a sense, the filmmaker, the director. Everyone has their individual processes, but a filmmaker kind of has to bundle his or her passion all together. 
So in a way, film is a weird admixture. One of the most ferocious solo pursuits, I think, is writing, not simply screenwriting or teleplay or scripted writing, short form, but novels, obviously, literature, poems, songs. And again, you know, being a musician is sort of an interesting hybrid because you're solo most of the time. There's that private moment, then you're performing. And performance is also a mixture of communal communing with the audience and also uh, inter- an internal cadence, an internal monologue. Writing uh, has always intrigued me because I think amongst the motion-based arts, it's the hardest, it's the most difficult. And I hate to describe art in terms of degree of difficulty, but I think writing has got to be right at the top of the pyramid. The great philosopher Mike Myers, Austin Powers, once told me, writing is like being homesick when everyone else is out at school playing at recess because you can't help but think that you're missing all that fun and you're wondering what they're doing. Uh, For every writer, there's a writing philosophy, you know, in terms of the development of the writer. It's very much like acting. For every acting coach, there's an acting philosophy. Acting seems to derivate from a core belief of what acting is. Writing, though, is much more like being in the, in the woods with the trees. <laughs> it's, um, it's really a deep dive. And, and I have a fascination with people who can clear away the noise. You know, Woody Allen often says that he's not a great writer, but he manages to tune out the noise long enough and uh, effectively enough to write. And that's an interesting uh, tombstone, tombstone, bumper sticker. <laughs> Sorry, I'm getting ahead of myself. It's an interesting, <laughs> I have Woody in the grave already. It's, a, it's an interesting bumper sticker because writing feels from, as you look at it, this abstract, this I, not abstract, the actually very material concept of being a writer seems very simple. You know, writing, we all write. Everyone writes. We all learn how to write, although how often do we pick up a pen these days? But that notwithstanding, it seems like it would be an interest, interesting and sort of accessible path for, an, for a person to express creatively. Oh, I like to write. And what, what one knows when one attempts to write is that you're going to write a lot of bad stuff before you write a lot of good stuff. And... Seeing the bad stuff often is the end of the writer's career right then and there <laughs> because it's it's this mixed message that writing seems, oh, I can write. I've, I, I know how to write. But every writer writes badly before they write well. It, it's, it's a simple uh, history lesson on the writer. But do you have the Teflon response to that failure and can you pick up the writing tool and write again so those elements leave me in wonder and and in awe of being a writer of what writers do today on the show is terry brooks and terry uh i would imagine will know in a moment (laughs) has been able to really tune out noise in a sort of interesting way because the sheer volume that, that terry's committed to the world in terms of words and literature is staggering. Uh, I want to talk to him about that piece. I also want to talk to him because history, he's kind of making his own history now. Um, The series, the Shannara series that he began in 1977 is ending. Well, it's not ending, I guess. Well, that's that's the question, you know. Art ending. Does art end more so now than ever, you know, Uh, Well, first of all, America likes a good comeback. The world seems to like a good comeback. But in terms of artists, artists are more restless now than ever. I think we're all more restless now than ever. Uh, So a writer wanting to pick up his instrument or her instrument again makes sense. And uh, because that's their response to restlessness. So Terry isn't immune, I would imagine, but we'll find out soon. Terry Brooks is with us on Murmur, um, but first this. 
Jack. We're on the air in five, four, three, two, one. Hey, it's Monday morning, and I'm Jack Lucas. In the world of talk radio, Jack Lucas was king. Look, I said I want an offer. They can forget it. To stay on top, he did whatever he had to. Forgive me! But one day, Jack went too far. It was Mr. Lucas's offhand remark that seemed to have fatal impact on Mr. Malnick. No matter what I have, it feels like I have nothing. Yo, what's going on? And just when he was about to give up on his own life, he stumbled into Perry's. Unhand that degenerate and remove your presence. I like New York in June. How about you? You know who I am? Hood ornament. No. I'm a knight on a special quest. A quest. And I need help. You're out of your mind! Yes! Now, Jack has to do something he's never done before. Isn't she a vision? I'm deeply smitten. Help someone else. I thought that if I could get him this uh, this girl that he loves, things would change for me. Let's do it right here. Let's go to that place of splendor in the grass. And this is Perry. Perry. Perry Perry. No, just Perry. Oh, like Moses. <laughs> I think they were made for each other. <laughs> Scary, but true. Sometimes to find yourself. I'm the janitor of God. You find some pretty wonderful things in the trash. You have to risk it all. Bingo! I'm not doing that. Robin Williams, Jeff Bridges, The Fisher King. I love this guy! Really hug me in public again. I was born to love no one. No one to love me Only the wind in the long green grass The frost in a broken tree I was made to love magic All its wonder to know but you all lost that magic Many, many, many years ago I was born to use my eyes Dream with the sun and the skies To float away in a lifelong song In the mist where melody flies I was made to love magic All its wonder to know But you all lost that magic Many, many years ago The, um, the great philosopher Lou Reed was once asked, uh, have you ever wanted to leave New York? Uh, Lou said, I've been trying to leave New York for 40 years. Um, so <laughs> it's, uh, it's, it's only fitting that a man who is about to leave his own universe that he's been in for 40 years, he may put his toe back in, I'm thinking, but, um, is with us today. He started out as a lawyer. We'll forgive him for that. Um, and since <laughs> his legal days... You know, I can hear this. <laughs> <laughs> you cut I, me off, but it didn't work. I called you back. You know, I tr- my call waiting isn't working, and, and our defense systems are down, so anyone like you can just call in, and it's a problem. <laughs> well, <laughs> the, 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 Yeah, it certainly is. And you know, there's no 
there's we don't just don't have adequate protection systems <laughs> against the unwanted and the, uh, the 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 difficult. So uh, here I am again. Well, then let's skip the intro. The intro, but simply to say. He's made out pretty, you know, lawyer made out pretty well, you know, better than most in, in, a, in, a, in a kind of emotional sense. He can sleep well at night. Uh, but what I love about what you said, amongst all the really pearls of wisdom, uh, your favorite word is yes. So we took advantage of that. <laughs> And we asked him to be on today's show, Murmur. We are honored to have with us uh, the long-distance author, iconic uh, writer, Mr. Terry Brooks. Terry, welcome, man. Thank you for being here. Thank you, Robert. Very nice to be here. I will say in defense of my lawyering years that in those years, and this was pre-Nixon, it was actually thought to be a great honor to be a lawyer, and people loved you. <laughs> you didn't have lawyer jokes. <laughs> I, you know, <laughs> I, I, I dust them off occasionally, but you know, Kafka studied to be a lawyer, I think, at some point. So, I, I mean, Yeah, you know, I think uh, there's a fair number of writers who studied and decided maybe this wasn't how they wanted to pursue their careers, but I think what most people don't know about me is that I, I really never wanted to be a lawyer. I didn't start out as a 10-year-old wanting to be a lawyer, but right, I did right. start out as a 10-year-old wanting to be a writer. So I was a writer, actually, uh, if not published. I was writing long before I ever started practicing or thinking about practicing law. And now you live in a sterling silver castle. What's that like? I mean, are the floors, <laughs> is, it, is it very difficult to walk along the, the floors? I mean, um, no, but that's... Well, actually, a, yeah. this... This is this is more ostentation. Uh, I live in two houses uh-huh. um, because I lived the first 42 years of my life uh, for the entire time, except going away to school in one town, in one house. Uh, and I just decided, you know, a writer shouldn't do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I started living in more than one place and traveling all the time. And I found it has enlightened me considerably and made me, I think, a better writer. Well, it's amazing. You know, we've been talking about and we talk occasionally about this sort of solitary, the, the part of the arts and any profession. I was using the metaphor of a tennis player, you know, the, the solo meditative side mm-hmm. of art, artist craft. Writers are right in that sweet spot that you sit, you literally have to be able to be alone, but, you know, you sort of have to block out noise and ghosts. I mean, is part of your living arrangement always been that, that you have a kind of sanctum that you can find, like, quiet in? Not to not to be too poetic about this stuff, but I, I always think about the lifestyle of the writer. Um, and you, you probably have nailed it after, you know, 50, 40 plus years of writing. Uh, but has, well, has, I've had to practice. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, you know, and a lot of young writers don't have that, I'll use the word lightly, luxury, but how important is environment to to you in, in, a, in a maybe general, but maybe also as, as a point of craft? Well, it, it, I think that the answer is more complex than you might imagine. Uh, some years ago, I went to Massachusetts and toured the homes of Edith Wharton and uh, 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 Herman Melville, uh, very different writers living under very different circumstances. Edith Wharton was wealthy, lived in a very palatial house, great grounds, gardens, exactly what you would expect. Uh, of somebody who has a lot of money, and then uh, I went over to uh, see uh, where Herman Herman Melville lived, and he lived in a house that was small and dark and uh, cramped with his wife, mm. his wife's mother, and his sister. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> oh, my and I figured, well, no wonder he wrote Moby Dick. <laughs> <laughs> and I think there's something to be said for the fact that if you're a writer, you'll find a way, mm, uh, because mm. it's who you are. Uh, I think writing defines who we are. Uh, it certainly does for me. Um, and so you, I, I've written in cramped little spaces uh, that wouldn't quite qualify as a bedroom. Uh, I've <laughs> written in uh, small uh, library spaces. I've written in a hallway uh, when I first moved to Seattle, wow. Um, wow. and now I I, I, I write in in de- designated rooms, one of which is almost an entire floor in the Seattle house, and one of which is a small kind of castle-like turret space in the house I live in in Oregon. Right. Uh, but I, <clears throat> the truth of the matter is, is that everything you do comes from within, for the most part, and it's either uh, envisioned in some way, m- remembered in some way, extrapolated from something you're looking at, 
but less so of the latter than of the former two. And uh, I think that's an important distinction, not simply because you're making it. I mean, it doubles it because you're making it. But we tell writers a lot, uh, write what you know. But I, but I think sometimes we look at that too literally. You know, um, that's true. But it, but as you say, it's a kind of internal response system. Or write maybe it should be write who <laughs> write who you know in the sense of know thyself, et cetera, et cetera. But is that, is that overstating it? I mean, do, what about this, this, premise, so. I, I, this premise of write what you know? You know, obviously, yeah. uh, I don't know any elves. Uh, <laughs> that, that, an elf I figured I was asking the right and, person. Uh, <laughs> even though I've looked for a few, I've met a few trolls. <laughs> I've dated uh, a few. <laughs> <in> a <way. laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> and you've dated a few. Right, uh, right. You know, I just think that um, the write what you know thing is, not, is taken too literally by some. Yeah. And what, what it really has to... I think what's really more important is finding your voice, which is, is another one, that, another saying that's uh, misinterpreted sometimes. Because I think what it really means is not, you know, how you how you write, but it it is what you need to write and how you say it that's going to make the difference. Mm. What what speaks to you in a way that uh, is your inner muse and will will tell you the ways you need to go and will tell you what will work for you. Because we can't all write everything, or we'd all be writing Harry Potter, you know, and waiting to make millions and millions of dollars. Right. Uh, but we don't do that, because that's, that doesn't even interest us, you know. Uh, we, we might enjoy it as a reading, but it's not what I want to write. I want to write something else, you know. I, I wish I wrote the great American novel, whatever that is, but um, <laughs> it's not who I am. So you, you have to recognize that early on and understand that you have limits and make the most of what you're good at and let the rest of it go by the side. And, 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 and as you suggested, we're t- speaking with Terry Brooks here in Murmur, and, and based a little bit on the footprint of your work, you know, Magic Kingdom of Landover, an amazing series, uh, it, it, you know, is, as you said, paraphrasing, is, clo- is as close to you maybe in, a, in an autobiographical sense, but it's also high metaphor. You know, r- r- yes. v- Vim Vendors once told me something really interesting about movies. I said, I said, what this practice of putting metaphors in a movie, how does that work for you? He said, it's the hardest thing to do because the, a movie is a metaphor. In, in and of itself, it's a mm-hmm. metaphor. What about that idea? You know, how, how much metaphor, you know, is too much metaphor? I mean, you know, I, I don't, I think it's never enough. I think, it, you know, the history of creation is the history of metaphor. But uh, do you avoid that sort of thing? I'm going to write something not about myself. I mean, how do you how do you balance yourself and the and the fantasy elements? Is is that a, is that a, a thing you have to do? Well, <clears throat> that's a that's a that's a difficult individual uh, answer, I think, uh, yeah, for yeah. any writer. And uh, for some, uh, it's all about who they are, right. and uh, <laughs> yes. what they're writing about never has to do with anything else. Um, and for some, it's uh, it's something that creeps in now and again, but it doesn't have that same importance. Uh, so, uh, you know, when I started out as a young writer, I didn't know anything about what I was doing. I was just flailing about like a crazy man, and that was pretty much the case with with Sword of Shannara. But um, I taught, I was taught some things along the way by my first editor, and uh, one of the first things he said is, uh, is just. Uh, just relax and write a good story. Hmm. Just tell a good story. Make right. that your primary objective. Don't get all caught up in the idea that you're going to envision something that's never been envisioned before, or write about something that no one's ever written about, because everything's been done to a certain extent in some way. It's your individual voice and your individual perception that defines the story. So to that extent, maybe we are all writing about ourselves uh, because we're writing in our own style, in our in our own voice, in our own way of looking at things. I think I, I, um, I think I love that. You know, it's, you reminded me of a Fellini quote, one of my favorite Fellini quotes. He said, "If I had to make a movie about an omelet, it would still be about me." So in the sense that if you know, <laughs> yes, that's right. But 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 as you say, you know, now we are. You're not saying this, but the fight is we are in this sort of narcissism age. But I love that advice. Has that always? Has that kind of been part of? The, the the bumper sticker of, of your thought as you write, you know, write a good story. What's a good story? What do I want to say? I kind, of think, I kind of think it is. Yeah. Uh, th- that's been my watch line all along the way. I don't think you should ever get too caught up in who you are, period. Mm. Um, that's, that's the, to that way lies the end of your publishing career <laughs> yes. uh, and probably your movie career as well if, if, if it gets too personal. Uh, people want to be, they want to be entertained first and foremost. Mm. They don't want to be lectured to. They don't want this to be didactic. They don't want, you know, this is not what they expect from this kind of story. 
Um, and I, I think when you go to movies, it's, it's very much the same thing. I'm always looking for things that resonate with me about the world or about my own life or about other people I know. I'm always looking for those things because I think we make those connections, and that's what makes the story work for us. If it feels real, it feels real because this is the world that we know something about or recognize. And that can be true of any kind of movie or any kind of book you think of. There's always something in there about it that we find is familiar uh, in what we know about life and what we know about people. Speaking with Terry Brooks, you know, going back a little bit uh, to something you said about starting out, it's fun. We were talking about Orson Welles last week with uh, Peter Bogdanovich, and Welles used to talk. Sorry about mm-hmm. these clunky movie metaphors. It's just, you know, I, I um, there's a lot of there's a lot of synergy between our, these artistic measures, as you know. But um, th- mm-hmm. the idea that well, when Welles made Citizen Kane, he said, "I started at the top and worked my way down." Now he was talking about his career on a, on a kind of analytical level, but. I also think not knowing something, there's a freedom in that, I would imagine. Do you miss not know, not knowing? I mean, do you miss, I mean, you know, it's that weird thing. You want to get better. And you, you say yourself, I, I'm learning. I want to keep learning. But w- when you reflect back on not knowing, are there things better left not said and not known? <laughs> well, I think there always are. I think, you know, this is, an, uh, for me, writing is an educational process. Um, and I think good movie making is that way, too, that every time you go out, and start a new project, uh, you're, you're, you're better informed than you were before. Your education is, is ongoing uh, from what you've witnessed in other art forms, uh, from what you've seen in books and movies, from what you've seen in art of any kind, from what you've seen in the world. And you try to, to build on something that, that's, that you've seen there uh, with what you know before. And I would like to think, I'm pretty sure, that I am a better writer now than when I started out. I certainly wrote better books uh, after I wrote Sword of Shannara. That was, that was a very popular book. It was very successful. I was really lucky to get in the door with that book. But all of my books since have probably been better written. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And uh, some of them, I think, have uh, resonated more with readers along the way, too. So uh, I, I think there's some, some truth in that. I don't know if I withhold anything deliberately. Uh, that's a tough question. Well, it's interesting. And it took you, uh, the history books tell us, it took you seven years for the first uh, installment. <laughs> what, what was, what was yeah, happening? I was in law school. <laughs> <laughs> you were Washington. I was trying to keep from going crazy. <laughs> so I was writing that book. And then, of course, after I got out, I rewrote it. So that's why it took seven years. I wrote it three times. What, what, what were your what, was your inner family or personal sanctum? What were they saying about your writing pursuit? Did you let them in on him <laughs> writing this book? They or they weren't telling me what they were saying. <laughs> <laughs> there were, there, the congregational church didn't have a lot of four-letter words in it, did it, Terry? <laughs> no, they did. Yeah. I'm sure that the uh, I'm sure that the uh, the the parent the parental units uh, <laughs> were convinced that uh, you know if I didn't grow up soon. Uh, my career, uh, whatever it was going to be, wasn't going to take me very far. Because, mm. uh, uh, you know, I wasn't an academic. I wasn't a student kind of kid. Um, I was always l- living in some other world in my head. You know, I was the kind of kid who played with figures, those little plastic figures when he was young and marched armies back and forth across the room. I was always <laughs> kind of weird. I was geeky in the de- time when there weren't geeks. They were, I don't know what they were, nerds or something at that point. You were geeky before geeky was rate, cool, basically. Uh, yeah, yeah. I just, I'm, I'm sure that they were, I think they were, they were proud of me because I was pretty good student yeah. and I did well in school and, you know, I was a good kid. So I was always like on the right side of the fence. My sister was always on the other side of the fence. So what's well, good when one sibling is, uh, yeah, exactly. They, they take uh, it's like friendly fire and then you can kind of be who you are. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's like Mary Pfeiffer says, uh, you fill the role that's available when you come into this world. Sure. And uh, I'd already taken the good student, well-behaved young man uh, who didn't mess around role. So my sister said, oh, I'll be the bad girl then. And that oh. was the role she fell into. Mm-hmm. Although we pretty much both ended up in the same place. Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, uh, the, the, you know, the, the sort of left brain, right brain thing is interesting. Were there creative people in your family, per se? Um, my parents both wrote journals. Mm-hmm. My dad tried his hand at writing, but uh, he uh, gave it up uh, because uh, the uh, he, uh, this was during the Depression, and uh, so he had to get a job. He couldn't mess around with writing, and then he was drafted and so on and so forth. So are they enjoying the farm? I don't know which, but... 
So that there was never anything that really. He was a story doctor for a Story Magazine and, and some other publications for a time. My sister is a writer. Uh, she writes plays for uh, young adult audiences. Um, and she's been doing that for 20 years and pretty successful at it. Well, it's so, interesting. And you've talked about learning from her the idea of, you know, sort of soups in the ki- cooks in the kitchen, you know, as you've gone on uh-huh. now. Shanara is um, uh, TV and, you know, you've worked in movies, at least with movie people. And, you know, the, the mm-hmm. subterfuge of that. So it seems like mm-hmm. she's you've had a common dialogue with her about the, the, the collaboration parts and the writing parts. It's kind of nice. We to, have. Yeah. Because it's, it's been very helpful to me uh, because in, working in theater, uh, it's very collaborative. And uh, you have to put aside your ego at the door. You have to realize other people are going to put their fingers in your work. That doesn't happen when you're a book writer. You know, nobody messes with your work. Your editor will, but if you don't give it to your editor till you're done, they're not going to do anything about it in the meantime. Who, so who reads there's your, a lot more control, a lot more autonomy involved. Who reads but, your uh, first... I, I'm finding yeah. out, uh, or I found out early, I should say, uh, that's not true in movies, not true in TV, uh, <laughs> and certainly not true in theater. So um, you have to come to terms with that, and I had to learn to do that. Uh, very early on, uh, when I was working on both Hook and uh, and uh, Phantom Menace. Well, I want to talk about Phantom Menace in a moment because it sounds like Lucas did give you some rope to swing or hang yourself by. But at least you know <laughs> there was that premise. But just, just to go back, um, who reads your first uh, output? Uh, Michael Haneke, the filmmaker, talks about his wife is always the first one to read his screenplays that he's working on. Who reads your first? Well, before I married Judine, which was in well before we were together in '86. Uh, uh, my uh, first draft was always read by my editor. And uh, when I had Lester Del Rey, which was for I don't know, the first eight books, maybe, um, he was very controlling. Um, and he made all the determinations about what was going to happen and not going to happen. And uh, so uh, I was on a pretty much of a short leash for that period of time, but I was also very uh, naive about many things. I was learning the craft. He was a great teacher. Uh, I was happy to have that kind of control because I was learning as I was going along, you know, because he always would explain why he was doing something or why I couldn't do something or whatever. Uh, and and that was a great education for me. But uh, since since then, Judine's always been my first reader. Mm. And why? You know, not because we're married, no. It's <laughs> because she's a reader, and she's a, she's a much stronger reader than I am, and she probably reads, you know, 150 books a year. Wow. Uh, and so she's got, and she reads outside the area in which I write. Yeah. Uh, so she comes with fresh eyes and a fresh attitude, but with a good background in books and why they work and so forth. And that's very useful to have because I write for a very particular kind of audience for the most part. And so I tend to take things for granted that she will question me on and say, well, look, you know, uh, I don't understand what you're trying to say here. And I'll I'll look at it and I'll see why she doesn't because uh, on closer closer look at it because I can see that she's coming at it from a different place, mm-hmm. so that really helps me shape the story before it ever gets to my uh, editor in uh, New York. Do you find writing to be lonely a lonely process? And, and let's no, use, I love it. Well, let's look at lonely as a, 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 a on a clinical level. Let's take, sort of take the pathos out of it. Uh, it's a mm-hmm. solitary assignment, but uh, have you ever felt you 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 were alone, if that makes any kind of basic sense in the process. No. no. You know, it, it may make sense, but it's not true of me. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I actually like being alone. Um, I'm happier uh, when I'm reading a book or when I'm writing than I am when I'm uh, doing anything else. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not that I don't like people. Um, I'm around people quite a bit. I have a big family. Um, but uh, there's something about that being a part that uh, it makes it very attractive. Um, I'm close to my wife, and we do a lot of things together, and that fills up about 80 to 85% of my time. Uh, and for me, luckily, I look forward to being alone and writing something. Uh, it just it re- reinvigorates me. It's like a, a reassurance of, of, of who I am. Um, 
I don't know, use any, uh, use any description you want to. It's, it's the kind of thing that calls to me on a regular basis, and if I don't answer it, I get, I get very unpleasant, <laughs> as, as, as you could hear if you talk to my family. <laughs> they're, they're, they're... If he's not writing, we really don't want to be around him. <laughs> uh, we want to, you know, let's keep him back over there. They have, they've bought me shirts that say, you know, crab ass or crabby old guy, <laughs> things like that. The, everyone's, so, a cr- everyone's a comic. <laughs> yes. Everybody's a comic and a critic. Both. Exactly. <laughs> uh, late in her life, uh, Greta Garbo moved uh, to Manhattan, uh, and she she was asked why why did you move to Manhattan? It's you know it's so crowded with people. She said, "I moved to New York because it's the only place I can truly be alone." Uh, so it's mm-hmm. it, it is you know it, again loneliness is kind of our own chore. It's our own thing. We could define it any way. You can be alone in a relationship. You could be, you know. But again, I, I meant solitary, not to paint this moribund idea of, of what any writer goes through. A question, you know, this uh, before we get a little bit into style, I want to get your reflections on current genre and stuff, but just for our listeners, because we tend to do a lot of craft-based stuff, what set, and I ask this of all, all, the most, the more accomplished the guest we have, the more I'm apt to ask the following. What separates you <laughs> Sorry, so don't don't hang up again. What 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 separates you? What separates me from the normal person? No, what separates you from a writer who hasn't uh, been published or created a life as a writer? What separates you? Oh, that's easy to tell you. Uh, there's a couple things, but the single most. The, I have a friend, a writer friend uh, named Elizabeth Craddy, and she. Uh, she uh, gives a lecture about how you get published. What's 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 the thing that makes a difference for why you get published? Nobody else does. And then she says there are a hundred reasons. She says name the number one, and you hear all these suggestions and all these things. And finally, somebody says uh, 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 persistence, mm-hmm. and she says that's number two. That's good. <laughs> what's number one? Number one is luck. Just luck. It's as simple as that. That's the most common answer on this show. Sorry, sorry, Terry. What? That's the most common answer to that question on this show, luck. It is, because, you know, every every writer I know has a story about how they got to where they are, and it all involves a major element of luck. Right place in the right time with the right material or some combination thereof. Uh, And the difference between me and many writers I've read who are not published, but who have been in classes I've taught or one thing or another, is, is small. It's very small. It's just that what they did just isn't quite where it needs to be or didn't quite catch on or they haven't quite got to where they need to be, that sort of thing. Um, I, I, I'm pretty well convinced that uh, the, the reasons that people get picked up uh, have nothing to do with anything that uh, has to do with art beyond the fact that they're all doing something that has some elements of that in it, but it's so much about other things. It's so much about the business. It's so much about anticipation. I I feel that way about the way movies turn out, too, for God's sake. Yes. Um, Why why are there so many bad movies? (laughs) Why are there... Why can't I go to a decent movie when I want to? I have to wait a week or two to find one, maybe, maybe a month before something comes along. It's because people's expectations are the things that often determine how we do. In, in this business, uh, you write a book and publish it. They say, we love it. Go ahead. We're going to give you a three-book contract. So they do. What they don't tell you is that if your sales drop off, we'll say sayonara by the third book. Yeah. We won't see you again. And, and you don't know this, but that's exactly how the business works. You don't sell. You don't eat. The sword of of uh, sayonara. I've deviated a bit here, but that's kind of what I feel about this whole whole thing. It's always you have to always remember it's a business. I feel a book title coming on the sword of sayonara. Um, <laughs> that that will be the last of the quadrilogy or whatever we're calling it, uh, what you're embarking on. Uh, speaking with Terry Brooks, that that's a tough pill, and it's a tough pill for every human being to swallow in the sense of the L. I call it the L word, which is luck. What is the opposite of luck? Boy, I don't know. That's a good question. And it can be more than uh, one word, you know, and I think unlucky is probably... Yeah, it, it has to be, I think. Yeah. Uh, it's, uh, sometimes it's as simple as bad timing. Yeah. Uh, sometimes it's uh, failure to persist. Hmm. Um, you know, I have another writer friend who says, the harder I work, the luckier I get. Uh, and and yeah. I think that's probably true, too. Uh, you have to have that. You really have to, I think you really, unless you are all the way lucky, you have to be the kind of person who has this in his blood, mm-hmm. that you're not a, 
complete if you're not writing. And that's who I am. I am not a complete person when I'm not writing. I'm not, I'm not you know, in, in every, any way you can think of. I'm, I'm just dissatisfied and, and restless and, and uh, irritable and on and on and on. When I'm not writing, when I'm writing, I'm fine. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know what that's about. I mean, I, mean, I suppose uh, if I took enough therapy, uh, I could find it out. But at this point, I have no clue. Terry, just leave forty-five dollars at the door, and I'll see you next week. Um, no, I, <laughs> I, 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 you're you're incredibly eloquent. I mean, I, you're disarmingly eloquent, and you obviously, you know, uh, for those of you who who are who aren't uh, acquainted but are listening, pick up Terry's book about writing. Uh, Sometimes the magic works because I love. It's one of my favorite titles on writing that. It's work and magic, you know, and, and the two are not yes. m- mutually exclusive, uh, as, as you suggest. Um, yeah. We'll talk a little bit about style just in the last couple of thoughts we have with you. Uh, I, do you do you make a distinction, or maybe I have too much time on my hands, but do you make a distinction between sci-fi and fantasy in the sense of genre well, sure. or style? You know, they used to make a very dis- – when I started out in the 70s uh, in publishing, uh, they, it was, there was a very distinct line between the two. And, and most editors would tell you that if you were going to write one, you don't blend it into the other. You know, they had to be kept separate. Otherwise, it wouldn't work. I always wondered about that, <laughs> you know, yeah. but I never wanted to ask why because I was afraid I'd get one of those lectures that uh, was beyond me. So uh, we've seen, though, uh, that uh, the two, in fact, are not – mutually exclusive, and that many, many very successful books um, and more of what is published these days kind of blends science fiction and fantasy together. I think the problem lies in the fact that uh, if you're not careful, you start getting into the problem of deus ex machina, uh, and you you don't ever want to overdo things like magic or uh, the uh, uh, evolution of science unless that's at the heart of the story. You just don't want to do that. Um, and when you blend the two, the opportunities for doing anything uh, suddenly pr- propel you into comic book territory. Mm, and when you get into comic book territory, then you're in trouble. Because either you're doing a comic book or you're not. But there's a very distinct difference between comic books and, and say, science fiction fantasy books. Well, I, I was... Uh, asked, or movies, for that matter. Well, you know, and that's my reference. And I was thinking about, I, I know you've mentioned uh, The Wild Bunch, which I was actually watching not too long ago. I mean, amongst films. Oh, that, Sam Peckinpah. I love that movie. Yeah. Family fair, certainly. Um, no, that's a joke. But um, <laughs> don't show the kids yet. Um, the, what, is, mm-hmm. what is a Western? What is a Western? Is that sci-fi or fantasy, or is it a completely different uh, encyclopedia? No, it's completely different. And, you know, I mean, it's marketed differently in any case. Uh, and I think it's the readership for the two are not necessarily the same either. So there's some crossover, but for the most part, I think Western writers, reading, whether they're reading old-time Westerns, meaning, you know, a century or two ago, or they're talking about modern Westerns, which have become increasingly prevalent and have kind of taken the place of the old stuff, um, that has a that has a, a couple different uh, approaches too, and, and to a certain extent, you could argue that 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 you could have taken Star Wars and made it a western. And I think Lucas once said he could have done that. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And when I talked to him about uh, about uh, why he he wanted me to do this Phantom Menace thing, I said, yeah, you know, I don't. I don't write science fiction, and he says that's okay. I don't either. <laughs> and I said, oh. And I said, well, so what do you write? And he says, oh, adventure stories. He said, that's why you're here. Interesting. And I yeah. said, ah, because that's what I've always said. You know, I don't write science fiction. I don't write fantasy. I write adventure stories. I love that. I just use tropes that relate to the one area or the other. And I, I think that's true of Westerns. Uh, the, the basic plot lines are universal. The characters, the nature of the characters, you know, the lone gunman is not any different uh, than uh, the lone uh, hero who goes on the quest. Uh, to accomplish whatever. I, I think those things tend to be very much universal. But uh, the, the staging and uh, oh, uh, the way you develop things and, what you, and the tools you have to work with uh, are much different. Uh, certainly it's a, a much different story if you have weaponry like we have today versus weaponry that you had, say, 150 years ago. Hmm. It's interesting. And, and, and if you look back at Lucas, to, to reinforce your point, a lot of you know, Buck Rogers and the serials and a lot of those you know, Raiders of the Lost Ark ethos, you know, the, the, the cliffhanger ethos. And, and obviously, you know, with Lucas, again, more specifically, there's a lot of Kurosawa in there. There's you know, a lot of... The, 
the Ro- Ronin, there and, is. and Yojimbo, and and uh, uh, yes. What, what and George? Um, if I can call him George, um, I do. You call him? Do people call him George? I mean, do, what do people call? Yeah, him? yeah, sure. Okay. Um, so when you work, Mr. Lucas. <laughs> George, no, he's very. He's a very easygoing guy, uh, yeah. and uh, very easy to talk to. And um, the time I spent with him, he made it extremely easy for me to talk to him up front about my concerns about doing the project, about what he was willing to do to make it easier for me. Um, about what he was trying to do with all this, uh, you know, in our various conversations and so forth. Uh, I finally got around to saying, what in the hell are these midichlorians? You know, <laughs> and he had an answer. He had a great answer for it. And so, you know, with him, it was easy to, to very easy to work with uh, were you a star- because of the fact that he was open. Were you, a, I mean, it's funny, we look in 1977, uh, for mm-hmm. your, for your virgin effort, and that was Star Wars, same year. Um, so that was a pretty bitchin' year. Um, were you a Star Wars guy? I mean, who? I guess everyone was a Star Wars. Oh, person. sure, yeah, of course, be- I was a Star Wars guy. Before, you know, we both yeah. Lucas and I grew up with the same influences. Right. Um, you know, we read the same writers. We 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 followed the same adventure stories. You know, all of that sort of stuff too. And. I haven't stopped uh, being a Star Wars fan or a science fiction fan, for that matter, simply because I write uh, fantasy. I'm very much involved in that. What, Movies or, or books. Well, then it, it jumps to the other notion, and, and I want to get your thought on it. Reading, you know, you talking about now the end of, of uh, the series, but you may dip back into it, you know, so let's not use the word end, but there, there's a wrapping up <laughs> here of 40 years. A wrapping up of the... You know, I, the reason I'm writing the end is because I don't want someone else to. I, I, I read you know, that. I realize yeah. now, uh, years of years of, of observance of the larger world has taught me that nobody gets out alive. Hmm. You know, so my plan to live forever is not going to work. <laughs> so if Damn with that in mind, and knowing <laughs> knowing that the publisher will um, five minutes after I'm dead line up the next writer to come in and write the ending. <laughs> hmm. I think, uh, well, maybe I will just uh, forestall that by writing it myself now, and then if I want to write some more stuff, I can. What What is the resistance? I mean, I'm I'm going to ask you as if I don't know the answer. I have a sense of it, but what is the resistance to having someone come in and do the world that you created uh, without your authorship? Uh, well, if I'm dead, I don't care. No. Uh, if I'm alive, I don't want it. Right. Uh, I've never. What if you were you know, kidnapped? I, <laughs> what if you were kind of halfway yeah, between? Right. <laughs> oh my God! Don't don't say that. I'm Steve teasing. <laughs> I have had um, I have had offers uh, and requests and suggestions that I work with other writers. Um, it's flattering, um, but it's not me. Mm. Uh, I always say the, say to when I'm asked about this that all of my report cards, as a child said, does not play well with others, and, and I think that's probably still true because uh, they would end up with their name on the cover, but they would not be allowed to write anything. Right, right, yes. yes. <laughs> so I, I just feel like uh, I'm better off writing by myself and doing it on my own. I have done some things where I have been involved with somebody else, and it just doesn't work for me. Like all wise men, we're speaking with a very wise man today, Terry Brooks, uh, you mentioned that <laughs> there's a little peephole where you may go back and investigate the world or expand some pockets and you know not be holden yes. to the narrative, but maybe explore something. It led me to yes. think a little bit, and... and Follow with. I'll, I'll I'll soften this a little bit. Um, is it possible to leave not leave well enough alone in the sense of you know I think of Lucas and Lucas is probably a bad example because he's in a different place with the Star Wars trilogy. But I also think of Ridley. Mm. I think of Ridley Scott with Blade Runner. I know Blade Runner is another movie close to your heart. Um, it is. There's but there's like 22 cuts of that film and and there had to have been because he went through this awful midwifing process and but. When is it too much? You know, when when do we tinker too much? You know, when and with all due respect to George Lucas, when does going back and retouching the graphics of a film from thirty years ago should we stop? Or I mean, when do we leave work alone? Do you think about that? Uh, I do, and I have a very firm rule: once it's done, it's done. Yeah. It never gets rewritten after my after it's in print, after it's a book. You know, out there in the public eye. That's the end of it. I'm never going to go back and rewrite anything again because, you know, I did the best I could at the time I did it. Uh, I had my chance then. I want moving on. Right. And that's how, kind of how I feel about this. It'd be like telling a painter, well, you did pretty well, but you could have done better. Why don't you try it again? <laughs> yes. You know, I just I think, uh, <laughs> or somebody saying, <clears throat> why don't you uh, write a screenplay? 
for your book, so it could be a movie. I said, you know, why do I want to do that? Let somebody else do that. I wrote it once. I don't want to have to write it again. Uh, <laughs> Wasn't it no, good it, enough the it, first it really, time? <laughs> I don't. I feel yeah, that's a mistake. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. it's also an egotistical thing that I don't think any writer should ever do or movie maker should ever do. It's like somehow I can make it better if I do it again. Yeah. Well, how do you know that? Who's to say that your judgment is any better than that of the audience who loved what you did? That's a gr- I like that. You know, I just I just feel like that is a, a big mistake, and I'm very much against it, and I don't like it. Well, now we're in, and again, I, Blade Runner is to me one of the holy grails of cinema for me. But now we have Blade mm-hmm. Runner twenty four forty nine, and and we have mm-hmm. Phantom Menace, not Phantom Menace. We have Rogue One, and and again, these are mm-hmm. other parts of the universe. I grant you that, and and all this stuff, but. Uh, did, when, what do you think, as a, as a, as an icon of of fantasy, and you know, I'm going to say this as if you can't hear it, and science, the fiction of science, the science of fiction, etc. What do you think when you see Blade Runner 2049, or you know, what <laughs> do you think? I, never, oh, Jesus. I, I, I can't say, you know, and I've seen some different cuts even of of, of the film, but the one that stays with me, uh, whether it's Alien. Uh, whatever it is, is, or any remake of an old film, I never like it better. I never like it better. Yeah. I just don't care. I just feel like I'm wedded to that first experience. And that first experience has defined that film, that book, that TV show for me. And, and I resist the idea that somehow I'm going to like it better in its other form, uh, probably. Uh, and that's what helps me determine. But I just never find it to be the same Again, but but then, I'd rather go back and watch the old one. But then we're in this, you know, this uh, sausage machine where we're creating prequels and, you know, twenty four and mm-hmm. Blade Runner twenty fourteen. You know, the character of Decker comes back to meet Ryan Gosling mm-hmm. and all this stuff. So again, not to sound too glib, but does that does that give it a little more protection against um, against the resist? You know, this kind of resistance to messing with the original so i guess my point is uh, ridley scott is an executive producer on blade runner 2049 so he may say to us hey you you guys this is not a redo this is an extension of does that give you any more tolerance to the new iterations of alien or blade runner I sp- it might, but you know, I, I just don't feel I need it. Yeah. I would rather see something more original. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I, once you there's a there's a certain sacrosanct. Uh, what can I say? Shroud here that that uh, that attaches itself to uh, a finished uh, movie, uh, and uh, to me to to mess around with that, uh, it just doesn't feel right. And and most of the time it doesn't actually do anything to make me feel better about that particular movie or to expand the experience. I, I just, you know, sequels are one thing, and sometimes sequels work, but as we know, mostly they don't work. I don't know what that's about, but uh, people <laughs> don't seem to be able to make sequels. I, can, I, would, I would have to stop and think, maybe The Godfather, uh, but it's very hard for me to come up with a single uh, series where a sequel uh, worked better. Well, Star Wars was... Another one too, or good. Harry and Potter, some of those. Yeah, I mean, we could no, cherry pick the, them, no. but I think you're right. I think the general, the, the general, when we when you hit the mallet on the knee, the general thing is pain. <laughs> the knee experience yeah, is pain. Yeah, it really is, and I just I just feel bad about that because so so many. If they could, I don't know what the problem is, but it's like they don't have any story for a sequel, yeah. and so they they make it anyway. They make the movie anyway, and then you you end up with. You know, eh, this was a, a real letdown for me, and the first one was so good. And then I come in and I watch this, and I'm thinking, well, what the heck? Uh, it works pretty well with with the comic book uh, movies, you know, because some of those actually the sequels are better. But uh, that's a different animal entirely, I think, yeah. than. than than what we're looking at uh, in genre movie making. And so. also those superhero movies, as you know, the first one is typically an origin story that we kind of know, and you know, there's all sorts mm-hmm. of f- formula. Uh, uh, enough of superheroes and men and women in tights. Just a couple of final thoughts. We're here with Terry Brooks. Uh, th- um, you know, it's funny. We had um, Peter Bogdanovich uh, not too long ago and Roger Corman and some of the great masters. I consider you a master craftsperson. Um, what? And and you seem like a nice guy, so I hate to even ask. What do you want your legacy to be? What? what 
and not that not that this is something we need to worry about, but what what I guess what I'm saying is there is an end going on. But you sound like man, you sound like you're ready to roll on some some new elements. I've heard you talk really eloquently about the state of the world, how you know we're not tr- you know, the, how we treat people as people now, and and when I yeah. hear you say that, even though I'm reading it on, on on the internet, it feels like there's more story in you, which I love. But where are you now? Like, well, where, yeah, I mean, do you, you know, want? To- I'm a, I hope I'm. I'll be writing forever. There's a. Uh, uh, I get that legacy question now and again, uh, and uh, I, I tell the story about uh, years ago when I went to England. Uh, one of the first times I went to England, and uh, I, my wife and I, we visit graveyards because that's the kind of people we are. Uh, and so we were going to, you know, besides going into the cathedrals like St. Paul's and so forth to find the tombs of famous people and so forth, and particularly writers. So we went looking for Arthur Conan Doyle. Arthur Conan Doyle is buried in a tiny, dilapidated churchyard way south of London. It, it was impossible to find, I'll tell you. But we finally found it anyway, and then we had to search the damn graveyard, which took us forever, and we finally found his, his tombstone way off in a distant corner. And it says, Arthur Conan Doyle, blade straight, steel true. Mm, wow. Now, my legacy is going to be he was a good workmanlike writer. Wow, that's uh, I'd that's sign it. for that. You know, you said something that's sufficient. I, well, you said something. I'm gonna I'm gonna give you another option um, because okay. you, it's and they're your words, so I'm gonna put them back to you. Uh, and of course, it came from that classic resource that we use on a daily basis, Reddit. <laughs> Uh, someone was asking uh, yes, you right. about some of the tools of your trade and, and what you, I think the question was, what do you like to drink or something? And you said, water, <laughs> water when I write, wine when I rest. It's not, I'll, I wouldn't mind that on my tombstone. <laughs> mm. No, but I said, I love the simplicity, you know, I guess my point is with all glibbery aside, everything I r- have read about you and now spending a very brief amount of time with you, I love how... Um, disarming your your sense of you know i think we overthink stuff and i think artists do uh and i love the fact that you you have found this really great balance between listening to yourself living your life and and work maybe that's the congregational church part of you you know it's it's work it's a, it's, <laughs> it could be <laughs> it's a day's work and that's a that's an that's an inspiring ethos terry it really really is man well i just think that you know i, I never i've never been I spent many years not being a very confident kid, um, and I've always been a bit cautious about how I view myself uh, because uh, it's real easy in, in this business to get all caught up with your own wonderfulness, uh, even if it isn't there. I mean, you can do it because everybody's saying, oh, we love your work, you must be great, it must be wonderful to be you, da-da-da-da-da. And the fact of the matter is, is that being you is just being you. It, it, there's nothing particularly wonderful about it. I love my life, but uh, I don't think there's anything special about me. I've just been lucky enough to find a niche where I fit. And, and I just I think that if you want to do what you do, that's what you focus on, and you, you let the rest of it, uh, leave the rest of it for someone else. If you've been lucky to have this career, then we've been more lucky to receive it. Terry, wish you nothing but the best, man, and you're such a great guy. I mean, that, that sounds like you're not even here, but it's it's rare to meet someone and to discuss work with someone who I, I think as a, you know, has found this, this voice of being a, a person, you know, like a day to day, this is what I do. I'm, I'm no different or better or worse than anyone else doing it. So I appreciate your sensibility. Well, you're very kind. I appreciate that. It's been fun talking with you. Terry, be well. Thank you. I, I didn't hang up on him, you know, just for the record. He said he thought I hung up on him earlier. I had him on hold, but I, okay, I may have hit hang up rather than hold, but I'm a, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm only a man here. You know, if you, if you cut me, I bleed, right? Uh, but in seriousness, it's, um, I, I don't like that answer he gave. And uh, mine's not to judge an answer of any sort, but I, I guess as a kind of teacher, I don't like the idea that a lot of guests come on and I say, what separates you from someone who hasn't broken through? And it's it's always the same answer. It's luck. And I that just drives me crazy because I can't teach luck. I don't even know what to do with luck. I mean, if I wake up on a daily basis and think luck contributes to 
what I can or can't do. I, I literally don't know how to spend the rest of the day. I mean, it's a paralytic thought. It, it's it's it, it, it has the makings of a really great question, what separates you? But I'm telling you, everyone I've, the, from the most learned, eloquent author to the most... Uh, I'll say Byzantine, but to the to and not to not to say that a musician is on the opposite pole of eloquence. But my point is, musicians, writers, actors, filmmakers—it's that L word, and I hate it. But I'm going to keep asking that question until I find an answer that I like and that I can promote going forward. We want to thank Terry Brooks for being with us here today. He seems like a good guy, but he did say he lives in a castle. That's amazing. We're not in a castle. We're at the studios of WHUPLP. This is Murmur. We're on iTunes, Google Play, and something called Stitcher. Send us an email. Go to our website, murmurradio.com. Listen and reach out to us. We're really excited uh, to be with you every week. See you soon.